All right, ready to step into the Word together then? All right, we're read, we're fed, we're watered, and we're ready. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 4, church family, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and uh, retrieve that note page from your bulletin because that will be helpful, I think, along the way, although we'll put much of what we do there up on the screen as well. And church family, I think we might be hard-pressed to find a more stark contrast or, or disparity than the one that exists between what we have just enjoyed at our brunch Sunday gathering and where we're about to head as we step into God's word today. Um, we're going to have a, we, we've had a wonderful time with uh, our shared fellowship and lighthearted conversations. And I heard the laughter out there under the canopies and friendship building and kids playing. And Lisa and I met some new folks here to IBC and, and uh, all of that taking place over a really tasty meal that Joe over here on the right helped prepare for us. Thank you, Joe. And then the team of servants that, that made all that work for us. And we did all of that out in the open, very public, no, no secrecy, no hiding. It was just all out there in the parking lot. And now, after all of that, I am going to ask you to think about the subject of suffering with me. <laughs> you talk about a, a kind of a 180-degree turn. Talk about a, a tale of two halves, to borrow a phrase from sports, from celebration to suffering. But sometimes that's just how it goes when you commit to a verse-by-verse study of God's Word, in this case the book of 1 Peter together. Uh, When we make that commitment from Sunday to Sunday, we just take it as it comes, right? And so today we come upon the subject of Christian suffering out of verses 12 to 19 of chapter 4. Now, the suffering that's in view, brothers and sisters, is a very specific kind of suffering today. Suffering because you have determined to follow Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You have committed to love him authentically and boldly. You're suffering because you believe with all of your being that Jesus is God. He died on a cross to pay a sin debt that he did not owe, but we owed a debt we could never pay on our own. And so he pays it himself. He dies. He's buried. He rises again. He defeats death, forgives our sin, restores us to a holy God in relationship. And so as I say, the suffering in view today is the suffering that comes because you love Jesus, because you have believed in Jesus, and you just happen to live in a time and in a culture that is hostile to such belief and, in fact, will not tolerate that belief. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about today. Not in view for us this morning is the suffering that anyone might experience simply because we live in a sinful, fallen world. Suffering in the form of a health crisis or a financial reversal or a terrible loss, a devastating natural disaster a war, a disintegrating relationship, or, or a thousand other places where life hurts. We're not talking about that kind of suffering this morning. This is painful suffering, and I don't want to make light of it. The Bible has a lot to say 
about how we deal with that kind of suffering. But it's not the suffering that is in view this morning. Much of what Peter's going to tell us in this section from 12 to 19 has crossover application. But that's not the kind of suffering. We're not talking about general suffering here. It's very specific. Peter invites us today to consider how to respond well to the fiery trials of loving Jesus. Suffering that can come when you love Jesus in a culture that wants nothing to do with him. And though this is not the first time that Peter has addressed this topic with us, verses 12 to 19 will be by far his most concentrated and powerful effort of the entire letter in this particular direction. As you know, if you've been with us, Peter actually wrote this letter of 1 Peter specifically to help Christians who, are, who were living in the midst of intense persecution for loving him, to stand their ground, to never give up, even if it costs them their lives. That's why Peter writes the letter. Here he brings all of his counsel together, Holy Spirit inspired, into this one focused place, 12 to 19. Now, I have memorized this section, verses 12 to 19, memorized it more than 30 years ago, so that if, if it ever happened that in my time and in my country that persecution against the Christian faith were to break out with intensity and it would touch me, it would touch my church family that I'm a part of and would touch those that I love, then I would be armed. I would be armed with a passage that would be in here and it would be in here and no one could ever take it from me, no matter what. Now, we're not there in our culture right now. John and Amy and his family are currently in an environment where that's becoming increasingly significant. We're going to be hearing from John in two Sundays, uh, and I'm sure we're going to get a, a lot more detail about what that's like. That's not the place for us in this moment. So today, think of this and our time in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19 as kind of you and I banking truth, banking truth that we may need to draw from in the future. So here's what Peter says to his persecution-weary first-century readers. Beloved, and here's Peter's pastoral heart coming out right away. Brothers and sisters in Jesus that I love so much, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those be who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And we will stop right there. 
responding well to the fiery trial. How do we do that, church family? How do we do that? Respond well when facing persecution for loving Jesus. As you see there on your note page, Peter offers up no less than seven great pieces of Holy Spirit advice for us, inspired advice for us. So let's start with the first one there. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So church family, what's our first response to persecution for loving Jesus supposed to be? Well, not shock, not not bewilderment, not, boy, I didn't see that coming. Not, nobody told me it was going to be like this if I loved Jesus. None of that. Don't be surprised, Peter says. Our first, expo- our first response when experiencing persecution for loving Jesus is to say, yep, that's it. I knew it was coming. No surprise for me. Now, this word for surprise here is a word that referred to an unexpected guest who shows up on your doorstep. What do you say when an, when an, uh, an old, out-of-town friend who's been gone from a long time knocks on your door, and you open your door, and you see them, and you go, what? Oh, wow! What are you doing here? You're the last person I thought I would see at my front door today. Wow! Right? That's this word. This is, that's exactly what this word is trying to capture. And Peter says, don't be surprised like that when you knew that when you stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it could bring intense suffering into your life. Don't be surprised. Now, I have to wonder if Peter wasn't thinking back to the night before the cross of Jesus and recalling what Jesus had said to him and to his other close disciples, his followers. Uh, And do you remember these words out of John chapter 15? I'm, I'm sure you will, beginning at verse 18. Jesus says, hours away from the cross, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they what? They will. They will. Not might. They could. They will also persecute you. Jesus was up front, wasn't he? (laughs) He was up front. Peter says, when persecution shows up on your doorstep, Christian, it doesn't have the wrong address. The master said it would be like this, so don't be surprised. And then the next piece of advice Peter offers also comes out of verse 12 when he says, see your trial as a refining gift. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, if this sounds vaguely familiar to you, if you've been with us through our entire study of First Peter, then you'll remember, oh, Peter said something like this back in chapter 1 
in verses 6 and 7. In fact, here's what he said. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, gives us an abbreviated theology class on persecution as a a lover of the Lord Jesus. Among the most important words in verses 6 and 7 are the words, if necessary. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Those words, if necessary, implies that there is a purpose behind everything suffered by a Christian for Jesus' sake. If necessary, tells us that God has a purpose for permitting the persecution of his own. And Peter says, Christian, you need to remember that. God has a purpose for this. To put it another way, these trials and pain have a a so that kind of clause. Verse 7, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise when Jesus returns. Trials are God-permitted revealers and purifiers of our faith. Persecution has a purpose. So that... If we can hold on to that truth, brothers and sisters, in the midst of intense persecution, man, we're, we're, we're going to be okay if we can remember that. This has a purpose. It has a so that. In verse 7, Peter draws an analogy between the fire of a trial and how gold is tested and refined by fire. As you know, gold does not come out of the earth pure. It has... It has a lot of non-gold material inside of that as well. And these impurities, they have to be taken out of the gold. Well, the way that's done, as you know, is by applying extreme heat to the gold to the point where not only does the gold melt in the crucible, but all of those impurities melt as well. The gold is heavier than those impurities, and so it sinks to the bottom of the crucible, and the impurities, they rise up to the surface. And then the refiner skims those impurities off of the top of the crucible, and, and, and that's called slag. What is scraped off is called slag, and it's thrown off to the side. Several more times this process is repeated. Each time slag is, re- is, is removed, and the purity of the gold increases it becomes more fully and completely what we would call pure gold. And so Peter uses that picture. And he's saying that our faith is like that gold. And persecution is like the fire that God, who is the refiner with a capital R, applies to our lives. The fire reveals the genuineness of the gold. The fiery trial reveals the genuineness of our faith. Are you following his, his logic? It's a beautiful word picture. All the impurities that tempt us to rely on ourselves and our strength to get us through that, that, that time of persecution, all that gets melted away. It rises to the surface as slag that needs to be skimmed off 
The Christian faith, your faith, now more pure, turns to God in the midst of the fiery trial in a way that it never did before. A new depth of faith is revealed. It's been brought out by the persecution in a way that it would never have been brought out otherwise. It's a gift. In modern gold refining, they heat the gold to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So let's pretend for just a moment that we could talk to the gold in the fiery furnace. What would we hear if we could talk to the gold? What do you think we'd hear? Ouch! Oh, man, this is hot. This really hurts. Get me out of here. Why is this happening? Why do I get 2,000 degrees and silver only gets 1,500 degrees? Please stop this. Clearly the refiner in charge must not love me. Right? But the goldsmith knows that the only way purification happens is by heat. And he knows the value of the gold increases as it is purified, as it is heated up. Its worth increases with every application of fire. And Peter says that our faith does exactly the same thing. It's more valuable, though, than gold. Gold perishes in the end, Peter says, but saving faith lasts forever. And so God says here to us through Peter's pen, you may not realize this, Christian, but the quality of your faith is far more important to me than your comfort. In American culture, we don't think like that. But that's how God's thinking. I'm going to reveal your faith and I'm going to refine it and I'm going to make it more beautiful, more pure. This will be a short-term pain for a long-term gain. James, writing in the opening chapter of his little letter of James, writes these words in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1. He says the same thing. It's like he's almost been reading Peter's letter. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that, ah, remember our trials have a so that, so that you may be what, church? Mature and complete not lacking anything. God's permitted persecution in our lives. It humbles us. It weans us from worldly things. It shows us what we really love, what we're really trusting. Persecution teaches us to appreciate more the blessings of God. It makes us more empathetic when we see others who are suffering. If we have gone through those trials ourselves, trials call out our sin, bring it up to the surface so that it can be skimmed off like slag. Persecution turns our gaze towards heaven. It has so many good benefits. It purifies our faith. And Peter is saying fiery trials really are the refiner's very special gift to you. And if you can just remember that, it will help you when you're going through the trial. Third, Peter advises us to rejoice. Trial is proof of relationship. Now, that has already been implied by what we have just seen. 
the refiner caring for his gold. But here Peter just lays it out for us in verses 13 and 14. Look again. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're in relationship with him. Now, is there anything more counterintuitive in a trial than to rejoice in it? That goes against everything that we would would think would be right. But that's what we're called to do here. Peter says, rejoice because you actually share in Jesus sufferings now this is an extraordinary statement and one that you may never have thought about before peter is saying that any suffering endured by faith in and out of a love for god a love for the lord jesus is of the same kind of suffering that jesus endured while he was on earth especially at the cross His devotion to the Father's will, his love for the Father caused the unbelieving world's hatred to break out on him in brutal, savage, fiery ways. And when that same unbelieving world unleashes its hatred on a Christian who's devoted to Jesus, well, this is the suffering of the same kind that he experienced. The Christian shares in the Lord's suffering. But I'll tell you this, church family, it goes beyond that. It goes way beyond that. Check out what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He's writing a church family in Colossae, and he's writing from a prison in Rome. And he says, now I, what's the next word? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, I'm going to tell you, church family, this verse is gold. This is gold. We read this, though, and we could think that Paul is saying there's something deficient in what Jesus suffered, and Paul is going to somehow make up for that by his own suffering. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. Church family, do not miss this truth. This is rich. What he's actually saying is that once Jesus suffered and died, rose again as victorious king and ascended back up to heaven for this period of time, now the world can no longer get to him. It can no longer reach him. It can't go there. There is more that it would want to do to Jesus if it could. But it can't. And since it can't get to him, Paul says, it tries to get to him through me, by striking me, by punishing me, by imprisoning me, by making me suffer. I get to fill up what is lacking in my Lord's affliction. And in that, I rejoice. Isn't that awesome? Peter's word, rejoice. For Paul, it was an honor to take the blows that were meant for Jesus, knowing that Jesus had in an eternally significant and saving way taken the blows from a righteous God that were meant for him. He says, it's a small thing for me to take the blows that were meant for Jesus. 
Galatians 6.17. He says the same thing in a slightly different way. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What do you mean, Paul? Marks, the marks of Jesus. He means the scars, doesn't he? He means the scars that he received from the hostile to Jesus culture that he lived in when it, when it took a, a cat of nine tails and, and whipped it across his back 39 times and, and beat him with rods and stoned him and starved him. And even more than that, the persecutions left marks that are on him. And he says, all of the scars that I've received in my life for loving Jesus are the marks that were meant for my Savior, and I got to take them. I rejoice that I got to take them. It can't strike Jesus, and so it strikes me. These marks on my body are my joy. They are proof of my relationship with my Savior. I am overjoyed. And Peter says the same things to us. Rejoice. Suffering is the proof of your relationship. It's an honor to wear his scars. Oh, may we remember that, church. If you flip your note page over, Peter offers us next this piece of advice for the fiery trial. Always suffer for the right reason. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now here, Peter calls for all persecuted Christians to engage in some honest evaluation when you experience suffering for Jesus' sake. It makes it, he's making a distinction here between a right kind of suffering, suffering at your culture's hand because you love Jesus more than you love your own life, And then there's this wrong kind of suffering at your culture's hand because of sins that have been committed by you. Self-inflicted suffering, as it were. And so he lists four things. He says, says, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief. In other words, pain that comes to you because you took someone else's life or you stole their property or you committed some other evil, that's not God-glorifying suffering. Never call sin's consequence in your life a fiery trial for Jesus' sake. No way. No, no, that's just the consequence that you should expect from disobedient living, right? So so, so always suffer for the right reason. Now that fourth one is meddler. Meddler. It's a word we don't use very often. Translators struggle with this one because it's an extremely rare Greek word. In fact, there's only one other use of this word in all of ancient Greek literature. Only one other place that it's ever found. It's, it's, a, it's a word that means one who intrudes in an unwanted way. One who intrudes in an unwanted way. Now we hear that, and that sounds to us like being a busybody, right? You're intruding into my business in a way I don't want you to. But that's not what Peter is thinking. There's a Greek word for busybody, and Peter doesn't use that word. What he's probably saying is this. Do not be the one who meddles, who interferes with the flow of the government. Don't try to be a Christian revolutionary as you suffer at the hands of your culture. 
Proclaim Jesus by your words and by your life, absolutely. But don't try to overturn your culture, even though it's making your life really hard for loving Jesus. Don't try to turn your culture upside down. Don't meddle. Now, the reason we think that's probably where Peter's going with this particular word and thought is because back in chapter, thir- chapter 2, verse 13, when we were talking about evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism, do you remember that? Church family, do you remember that? Everybody say, yes, I remember that. It was like you said it yesterday, Tim. Back when we were thinking about that, here's what Peter said, chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. In other words, we were talking about this several weeks ago. We are to be the best citizens we can possibly be in the midst of our culture, representing Jesus very well. Do you remember this? Everybody says, yes. Yeah. If you're going to suffer as a Christian, let it be for the right reasons, for loving Jesus. And then another bit of helpful advice comes our way in verse 16. As Peter says, in effect, wear the name without shame. Wear the name. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name don't be ashamed of the name christian it means follower of christ don't be ashamed to wear that that name that title that label now why does peter have to say that don't be ashamed of the name why does he have to say that It's because he knows, doesn't he? He knows that often the first impulse when we are experiencing persecution for Jesus' sake, our first impulse when we're the minority and the majority are angry and they are aggressive and they don't like who we are and they don't like who we represent and what we believe, our first impulse is to shrink back. It's to pull back. It's to hide, perhaps be ashamed of our name, even deny it. Now, I can't prove this, but I think this piece of advice is born out of Peter's own personal experience. When on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Right? He denied even knowing Jesus. The shame and the anguish and the deep regret of that moment in Peter's personal life is burned into his heart. It's burned into his mind. And he never wants to know that feeling again of being ashamed of his Savior. And he never will again after that night. He does not want his beloved readers to ever know what he had experienced, what he had felt. It was horrific. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do not be ashamed of the name. Acts chapter 5 verse 41. After Peter had been arrested for preaching Jesus, we're told this. Then they left the presence of the council. What were they doing? (laughs) They were rejoicing. They're not ashamed. They're not hiding. They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the what? The name. The name. The God of the universe hung naked on a cross and died our death at the hands of jealous persecutors to purchase our life. It is a very small thing for him to ask us to wear his name in public without shame or humiliation, and even unto death if necessary, right? Praise God, you bear that name, Christian. It means you belong to him. And that, in fact, prompts the next piece of advice from Peter to persecuted Christians. Never lose sight of the big picture. Verse 17, verse 18 For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, church family, at first read, this sounds kind of confusing. Part of our confusion is that judgment beginning at the household of God, that seems to kind of of contradict uh, the truth that a true follower of Jesus does not come into judgment. I mean, we have verses that that pile up about that. We don't come into judgment. Jesus paid for that, right? We all say amen and amen. Jesus paid for that. So what, what Peter, though, is referring to is not that final judgment that the Bible says falls on those who reject Jesus and refuse to believe in him. He's thinking here, once again, of that refining fire of persecution that is temporary and it's permitted by a a loving heavenly father who's committed to shaping us into the likeness of his own son. And so he, he judges the church first. He judges us first in that sense of purifying his people with fire in order to, to be done with sin and, and, and living for the Lord in a, in a beautiful way. The judgment of God starts with the church. It's temporary It's only during this life. It's not eternal. And so Peter is urging an eternal big picture perspective. Yes, God's refining fire is painful for his people, but it weans them off of the world. It forces them to live by faith in the dark. It drives them to their knees to dependence upon the Lord. And yet as hard as the hardest moment is for a Christian who is suffering, No matter how hard that moment is, it's nothing, nothing compared to the wrath and ongoing eternal judgment that falls on those who are without Jesus and are separated from God forever. It's nothing. Those who do not obey the gospel of God, the suffering of the unbelieving is unspeakable. It's eternal Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said it this way. Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way in 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. Peter's saying, a Christian suffering is hard. It's, it can be really hard. But final judgment, infinitely worse. As Christians, we must never be glad about that. That should always sober us to think about that. And we should always be grateful to God that that's not going to be in our future. It should move us to, to see with compassion the unbelieving who live out here in our community and, and, and seek to introduce them to the only one who can save them from eternal judgment. That should be our goal, our passion. Share the Savior. But we never lose sight of the big picture. Way better to be refined by God now than separated from him forever. Keep the big picture, Peter says. And then last, the last piece of advice Peter offers his persecuted brothers and sisters in Asia Minor and in Idlewild is really just a beautiful, concise summary of the entire book of First Peter. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your life to him and do good. Yeah, that's the, that's the whole book of 1 Peter in one verse. Suffering for Jesus' sake, it's not random, Peter says. It comes to us according to the will of God. He's in control. There's a purpose. There's a plan to all of it. There's nothing that comes into your life which God has not permitted and has not ordained before the foundations of the world were even laid. No surprises. It will be for our good. Whatever the suffering is, it'll be for his glory. It will be according to his will. It's going to be good. Therefore, remember. Therefore. Ah, do you remember what the therefore is there for? Right? In light of everything that I've said previously, therefore, entrust your soul to your faithful creator. That word entrust, it's a banking term from Peter's day. It meant to put on deposit for safekeeping. Deposit your whole being, your whole self, the material and the immaterial you, the physical you and the spiritual you, and all that you care about, deposit you into the safekeeping of your faithful creator. Place you in his vault. It's a great picture. Do that, Peter says. There's only one place in the Bible where this expression faithful creator is used and it's right here, faithful creator. Now, why does Peter use it here? Well, it's his way of reminding us that we're simply giving back to God what he created in the first place. He created us. And so we're just giving us back to him. He's our faithful creator. He knows best what, he, what, what we need. We don't know, but he knows as a faithful creator, he'll meet those needs because he's faithful. Will he meet all of our needs, Christian? Or just most of them? All of them? Are you sure about that? Every single one? Why? Because he's faithful, right? He's the faithful creator. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all or every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. <laughs> yeah. 
What we do in the meantime, though, Christian, is what? We do good. We do good. Fiery trials are not an excuse for you and I to suspend obedience or prayer or service or loving each other. That's all good stuff, and it needs to continue, Peter says, even in the midst of the fiery trial. We tend, and I think this is why Peter says this, is because we tend to be rather self-focused in hard times. And Peter knows this. But when my trust is in my God and I've given me, all of me, over to him, I, I, can, I can rest in that and I can do good. Even to those who persecute me? Yes, even to them. Do good. Church family, who does this sound like to you? Loving the persecutor, submitting fully to the will of God, and doing so even unto death. Who does that sound like to you? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Sounds like Jesus to me. Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain in the temple was torn in two and then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I would submit to you, church family, that Jesus does 1 Peter 4.19. Those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves. Who has suffered more by the will of God than the Lord Jesus? No one. No one suffered more than him. What did he do? When he went to the cross, bearing our sin. The text just told us. He called out with a loud voice into your hands. I commit my spirit. The Greek word for commit that Luke uses here is exactly the same word that Peter uses in verse 19. Exact same word. Jesus suffered horrifically on the cross, the ultimate example of unjust persecution. And what did he do? He deposited his life. He entrusted his life. He committed his life to his faithful heavenly father. And if Jesus can entrust his his life to his faithful father, can we trust him with our lives in the fiery trials that may be waiting for us in our future? Can we do that, church? We can. So let's not be surprised when those fiery trials come. Let's be ready for those. Let's bank these truths for that day. For that day could come much sooner than we think. Let's pray together, church. Oh, how we thank you for your word. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you. For your word. You've met us. You've actually anticipated what might be in our future. And you have sought to equip us today to be ready. Our culture increasingly is moving in a direction away from you. And the price for loving you in our culture could soon be very steep. 
It's hard to imagine that in this moment of ease for us. The church in China understands this way better than we do. But the day may come when this is where we'll need to live in these verses, 12 to 19. And so I would ask you, Heavenly Father, to help us perhaps make a commitment as a church family to memorize verses 12 to 19. Not not just read these words, but hide them in our heart so that we will have them and no one can ever take them away from us so that we'll be ready should that day come for loving you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And all God's people said, amen and amen.